Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 20th, 2017, and my guest is Cass Sunstein, the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School from 2009 to 2012. He was administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and he's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law, author of many books and articles. His latest, at least I think it's his latest, he writes so many, it's hard to know which is the latest, but his latest is Hashtag Republic, and he was a guest on Econ Talk in May and November of 2007, which seems like a very, very long time ago. Cass, welcome back to Econ Talk. It is great to be back. Uh, is this indeed your latest book? I think so. <laughs> There's something else in the pipeline, but this qualifies as the latest. Okay. Your book is about it's about a lot of things, uh, about a role of citizens, about the role of the internet and virtual and cyberspace, uh, but you focus on the dangers of living in an echo chamber surrounded by views and ideas that we already accept, and when we become blind to a wider world of information perspectives, uh, that's, that's dangerous. And you write, my largest plea here, in fact, is for an architecture of serendipity for the sake of individual lives, group behavior, innovation, and democracy itself. To the extent that social media allows us to create our very own feeds and essentially live in them, they create serious problems. So let's start with what you're worried about, particularly for democracy. Okay, so if you have people who live in uh, cozy, comfortable information cocoons in which they hear say that Senator Sanders is basically right on everything and um, anyone who disagrees with him is part of a rigged system or in which they hear that uh, Friedrich Hayek, who actually is one of my heroes, but if they hear that Friedrich Hayek was correct on everything and that that's all you need to know on Earth, then you have the... Hayekians and the Sanders types who will be unable to understand one another, that uh, their uh, capacity to enlarge their own horizons is radically diminished because of the limited set of people with whom they're interacting. And uh, that is very bad for democracy because as great as Hayek was, he wasn't right on everything. And uh, Sanders has some good ideas, but he has some ideas that aren't so good. And it's good to be able to see what's wrong with one's own views, either in order to change them, or even if on reflection some version of them survives, to see why uh, reasonable people who are also members of the human race uh, think you're quite wrong. Well, one response to that is uh, sort of a two-pronged response. Is it's always been something like that. We, we tend to like things that confirm our views. And the second prong is, is a really Anything that can be done about that? I mean, most of us are not uh, professors in law schools questing deeply for the truth like you are, um, giving you the benefit of the doubt there. Uh, we're all just flawed. We, we tend not to be deeply curious uh, about public affairs because we don't influence them very much. And so we have all these biases, and we now reinforce them more intensely. Is that, is that anything new? Is it, is it that alarming? 
Well, uh, if uh, we have a problem of persistent poverty or tens of thousands of people dying on the highways or a very large number of cancer deaths from smoking, it wouldn't, I think, be an adequate response to those concerned about those things to say none of this is new. The deaths on the highways are as old as automobiles. And, uh, you know, uh, people have been smoking cigarettes for a long, long time. So uh, there are some respects in which what we're observing now is new. That is the uh, extreme ease with which one can find a pretty big and comfortable information cocoon. That's a technological novelty. But the concern about the echo chamber effect is independent of its um, pervasiveness in human history. Uh, the second point about the flawed nature of uh, humanity, uh, completely agreed with that. Um, Alas. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of a good thing that people have interests other than politics. So if you want to focus on your family or your job or the literature or poem you're reading and not think about what's happening in D.C. or in your local state house, fantastic. That's part of freedom. But curiosity is something that distinguishes the human species, and we can have a kind of architecture which um, promotes and satisfies curiosity or an architecture that promotes and satisfies the desire to flock together. And uh, the stakes are super high, both for what individual lives are like and for what our society ends up um, being. And uh, the flawed nature of humanity is compatible with an architecture that uh, promotes uh, humility and um, uh, mutual understanding or one that uh, promotes that kind of I'm right and you're wrong, and uh, probably it's better to move toward the former. Couldn't agree more with that. I think our disagreement over this conversation is going to be how to get there and what you know what's what's acceptable and what isn't. But before we get to that, I want to lay, lay out more of the ideas. One of the things I found most interesting was your focus on what I forgot the wording you used, but think about it. Think about it. Thinking about it as public space or shared space or. You know, the village green and the old in a small town, uh, the importance of shared experiences, especially with, re with respect to information content. Talk about why that's important and what's worrisome about what we're uh, experiencing now. There's an old First Amendment principle uh, that has the name of the public forum doctrine, which is uh, not widely understood as part of our free speech tradition, but it's really central. And the idea is, in addition to saying that the government can't censor speech of which it disapproves, it has to maintain spaces open for expressive activity, parks and streets. And this is a historical, uh, historically based idea that the streets and parks have been open for expressive activity. The Supreme Court has actually said that's part of what a free speech um, uh, tradition requires. And that's important because it gives us um, an opportunity, if we want to use the streets, to have access to people with whom we have a beef so we can protest. It also gives us a sense of uh, visibility into the concerns of people who are unhappy with how things are going. So if there's a protest about 
you know, government regulation or about the police or about taxes. Uh, so long as the streets and parks are open, it's not easy for each of us to wall ourselves off from that so we can see the concerns of our fellow citizens. And also, as you said, there's a shared space in which we uh, uh, live together in, in at least some kind of modest ways. And any nation needs uh, something like that, and any city needs something like that. And I, I use needs in a relatively new sense, not in the sense of needs like you need drinking water, uh, food and drink. You need those in a very strong sense. Needs in the sense that to be what they should be. So if you have a nation where people are segregated and have different sources of information, they don't have shared holidays or a shared sense of culture, then the capacity to solve problems, to work constructively together, uh, uh, to feel uh, sympathetic engagement with people who are, uh, let's say, in a different state or have a different occupational uh, trajectory is, is compromised. So people like it when they have shared experiences, and also shared experiences tend to be a kind of social glue. So I recently moved to Concord, Massachusetts, where the American Revolution started, and uh, you can't uh, avoid, once you're in Concord, just uh, being filled, almost like by food, with the uh, majesty of the American tradition and the uh, and the revolution. And that is a great thing for the citizens of Concord who are all unified by that. But it's not just Concord. In a way, it's the United States of America that's unified by that. There's a shared understanding, not everyone, but enough of where the United States came from. The kind of uh, viral nature of Hamilton the musical is both a uh, fortifier of the shared experience and also a testimony to the craving for it. The, the things, the unlikely mus musical, uh, rap musical about Hamilton, one reason why it's gone uh, so spectacularly, gotten so spectacularly popular is people want to share something. And this has the serendipitous feature that they're sharing something that's actually about their heritage as well as about the musical of the year. I'm a big fan of Hamilton, uh, and we have an upcoming episode at least scheduled on it um, with uh, an interesting guest, and I hope that that happens. Of course, Hamilton's not historically accurate in any fundamental sense. It's in some, Maybe in some fundamental sense it is, in the most, quote, fundamental sense, but not literally accurate. And it's created a certain mythology about the founding that is – and about Hamilton, which has pluses and minuses. It's um, – it's not just designed to entertain. It also is designed to educate. And, of course, the challenge of shared experiences is that they may sometimes be wrong. We may grow up with a myth about how America treated minorities to find only to discover that it maybe wasn't as good as we thought or et cetera. So, obviously, there, there are, there are trade-offs there, right? Well, what, what, okay. So, I think what we're focusing now on is – not only import the importance of unplanned, unanticipated encounters, which is kind of the antonym of the echo chamber, but also the importance of shared experiences. So it can be, you know, the, the, the Super Bowl, or it might be uh, July 4th, or it could be uh, Star Wars. And all three of those things uh, are great, in my view, differently great, and July 4th, probably the best. Love Star Wars, though I do. But one feature that is important for all of them 
is that they um, create a commonality among people who are really different. And that can be great in the sense that people find it very, very enjoyable or moving. And you can see that with respect to all of these things, right? Uh, sports event. But it's also good in the sense that it creates uh, a glue, uh, you know, probably July 4th a bit more than a sports event. But it creates one where there's, and I, I, I want to try to be concrete rather than sappy here, but something like uh, mutual recognition where people will see each other as common types. So I'll just tell a little story. Uh, uh, not very long ago, the last couple of months, I was hit by a car in Concord, Massachusetts. Could have been killed. And I recently Sorry, read the police right. report. I'm completely fine. I got lucky. But I read the police report right now. And the number of 911 calls that my getting hit produced to the police was really high. Now, it's not a lot of fun to dial 911. People are busy. But people, are, as the police report indicated, people were saying there's someone hurt there. Let's get help. And you know, this was, uh, was a stranger to every single one. And what I'm describing now is in really small ways where people aren't necessarily hit by cars, but they, they need a little help. And if you see them as fellow citizens, uh, and the things we're describing are contributors to that possibility, like when the New England Patriots are in the Super Bowl, which is frequent uh, all the time, I hope. Yep. Uh, frequent is the right word, but uh, we can reconstruct history and say kind of all the time. But then uh, New England is, you know, New England's all one. Red Sox nation yep. for, for the Red Sox. And, and that is something that, uh, in this case, government didn't create. It's private. It's um, uh, spurred by people's desire for this. And what I'm urging is that not only is it fun in the case of sports, but it also creates something which binds in a way that uh, uh, plays a role in the fact that we see each other not as, you know, uh, Martians, but as kind of in some very extended sense, family members. I want to go back to the, um, I like that idea myself, um, up to a point. Like I'll say, as I'm sure you know, can be harnessed to be destructive and dangerous. We all understand that also. Uh, I, w I want to go to the, the point. Well, when about, the new, you mean the New York Giants when they exactly. threaten the Patriots? Exactly. And, That's not quite what we, I had in mind. I was thinking more. Okay, of, so we, <laughs> we can think of, of them as destructive and dangerous, no, but after 9-11, there wasn't a New Englander whose heart wasn't with New York. That's true. For for about a week, maybe a day, maybe an hour, but uh, it, that's longer. true. And But I'm thinking more about you know, the, the ability of fascism and other movements to harness people's desire to be part of a group and we, there are many glorious transcendent things about that and some not so glorious transcendent things yeah. about it. That's so all. so, so all, all I want to say, consistent with your question, is that shared experiences are both um, something that people like and they have a wide range of unintended good consequences. So whether shared experience turn into fascism, that would depend on all sorts of stuff independent of the shared experience itself. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm going to go back to your public forum point because I found that uh, very provocative. 
and it it becomes stronger when we are, as you point out and others have observed, um, we're less likely to get outside physically. Uh, so we're, if there is a protest, we're less likely to see it. Uh, the public forums we inhabit are increasingly virtual. Uh, people lamented, I think uh, maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago, that public spaces were diminishing and, and the Village Green was being replaced by the mall, the shopping mall. Uh, now people are lamenting it's being replaced by Twitter and, and Facebook and other forms of social media. And it raises the question of – and you you deal with this some in the book, but not extensively. It raises the question that you know these are private entities, Twitter and Facebook, for example, uh, and yet they are our public fora. They are where we go to get our news. They're where we go to hear different opinions, and of course, to some extent, hear opinions that only agree with their own. The echo chamber problem, but they are the place where if you want to get people's attention, it's where you go. It's where you market your book. It's where you market your idea. It's where you market your political campaign. And so it's an interesting question for me as a very hardcore First Amendment person and private property person, whether those traditional uh, bulwarks uh, against government intervention in, in certain areas should be changed in this modern setting. I don't think you come down particularly strongly on that in the book, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. It's a great point, uh, and I'm smiling because when I left government, I wrote a book called Simpler, and which was published by a non-university press, let's say, and a non-academic press, and their uh, instruction to me was, get on Twitter and Facebook, <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, how do I do that, <laughs> really? Uh, and just consistent with what you say, that that's how you reach a general audience. Uh, Maybe YouTube, uh, right? There, there are a few other places, but they're all yeah, similar in that too. for some of us, it's very unnatural, and they're all private, which is the more yeah. interesting challenge. Yeah. So Justice Kennedy has been the most articulate, I think, on the Supreme Court about this. And he was a while ago, he was talking about airport areas and malls and suggested they're the functional equivalent of public fora now, even though they're frequently privately owned, typically privately owned. I guess I think with respect to social media, uh, the the privateness is decisive as against government intervention. So the, the, of the sort that we're now discussing. So the notion that your Facebook page should be treated as a public forum such that you or Facebook uh, are, are going to be subject to government mandates, that... Uh, uh, would intrude too deeply on people's um, uh, um, justified capacity to manage their own property as they see fit. So I, I wouldn't want government to be saying, you know, uh, some social media platform is now a public forum, that the Supreme Court's caution about extending the idea behind uh, streets and parks is is correct. Uh, though something is lost with that caution. Still, I mean, what would public forum look like even, doctrine look like even, if we said that Twitter was a public forum? Would your Twitter feed be uh, open to anyone who wanted to throw stuff in your face? Would you lack control to say, I don't want to see a protest about X in my Twitter feed today? Uh, then, then Twitter would become like a public utility, and that 
it's not it's not clear on what account of costs and benefits that would have benefits to justify costs. And I agree with you, but it's an interesting question of how, and this is really a, a big explicit and implicit part of your book, is how do you get people to um, care about things they might not otherwise care about? And I'm going to put that in the most broadest sense. Right. To me, it goes way beyond politics. It includes art. It includes uh, music. It includes literature, sculpture, ideology, philosophy, etc. And right now, um, it's ironic. It's very private. It's very walled off. It's very hard to force people to see things they don't want to see. And yet, we live in perhaps the greatest time in human history. I don't think perhaps. We live in the greatest time in human history for finding out about stuff. And right. so uh, it's it's it seems strange to be upset about it. And I think you deal with that in the book. Why don't you talk about that actually, the the sort of the strange world that it's a, it's a paradox. There's more information and more diversity in my Twitter feed than I had in any time in my life. And yet it's a little bit dangerous in that, I worry about whether I've walled myself off. Right. So to, to to do a book saying, whoa, Twitter, Facebook, this is fantastic. <laughs> that would be a pretty boring book. Um, it's more interesting, I think, and to, uh, to explore downsides with things that are generally uh, great and, and recognize as such. Just really interesting to explore upsides with things that are socially disapproved and uh, have some fantastic incidental good consequences. So the the problem uh, with Twitter for many users is that they end up um, seeing uh, mirror images really of their own incipient or developed convictions, and that breeds uh, confidence and it breeds extremism. So just as an example from these months, we've seen on college campuses some actual shutting down of conservative speakers, and there are a lot of things to say about that, and it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's deplorable. But I think more interesting than the fact that, that it's deplorable is how could that actually happen, that, you know, by hypothesis, pretty smart people are saying we're not going to allow someone who's like Charles Murray, who's you know got a lot of interesting thoughts for um, to speak here at Middlebury College. How could people think that? And, uh, and one feel of good the, about it. It's one thing they could think it. It's one thing to feel proud of it. Yeah, we all, yeah. We all one, think things about people we don't agree with, and we understand that. It's how do you be proud yeah. of the fact that you want to shut them down? Right. And what we're discussing now is is uh, a a causal. Factor, which is if you get like-minded people together, they typically end up in a more extreme point in line with their pre-deliberation tendency. That's kind of a song from social science. And the mechanisms are pretty clear. The most uh, simple is if you're talking to people who think like you do, then you're going to hear a lot of arguments supporting your thought. You're not going to hear a lot of arguments the other way. And after you're done talking, whoa, the arguments that supported your thought are even stronger than you thought. The arguments the other way are even less numerous and less plausible than you thought. Then you get more extreme. So you build up, and I think this has happened with respect to silencing of conservatives, you build up uh, confidence, unity, and extremism among people who have faded with, were exposed to broader information base they never would have gotten there. And what we're observing on Twitter and Facebook is hardly for most users what we're now talking about. But for many users, it's exactly that. 
where they see on their Twitter feed something about immigration or climate change or the Affordable Care Act, and you can take it, you know, left or right wing versions, both work. And they're just exposed to uh, uh, a little group of deliberating types who are pushing one view as a result of which you're going to move whoosh in the direction that you were inclined, uh, but more extreme. And we have data on that with respect to people deliberating about climate change and affirmative action, both on the left and the right, they end up more extreme. And we have data on that actually with respect to the voting behavior of federal judges, where on three judge panels, a Democratic appointee sitting with two Democratic appointees shows much more liberal voting patterns than a Democratic appointee sitting with one Democratic appointee and one Republican appointee. Now, what makes that, I think, startling is two Democratic appointees, they've got the votes. Why should they show more liberal voting patterns when they're with uh, three Dems than with two Dems and a Republican? The reason is information that in the echo chamber, so to speak, the judicial echo chamber, uh, more extremism is not a product of being a bad person or anything. It's a product of what informational inputs you get. And Facebook in 2016 wrote an account of its core values, which was kind of very intelligent and also uh, charming, which talked about, you know, there's thousands of things out there. Uh, how are you going to get what you want? Uh, we're going to help you. Our, our core values are we're going to provide what you want and what's subjective and personal and unique. I think that's an exact quote. And the idea that that's what your Facebook newsfeed is going to look like. Facebook's you know, very smart author was not self-conscious that that's that's not good if each person is getting uh, a newsfeed which is subjective, personal, and unique because then you create uh, a lot of echo chambers. So I want to add something to it. I don't think uh, I noticed in your book and I, and I think it's not widely talked about. I I think the echo chamber problem is is in many ways worse than than you suggest i'm going to come back and defend it in a second but it's worse in the following way i don't think it's just the information problem that you're not exposed to ideas that are challenging to you or that are fully you know you capture the spectrum of thought on a particular issue i think people get a lot of pleasure from being around people who think like they do and it's fun to feel yeah. smug and self-confident and overconfident and superior. And so I think there's a huge – I don't see it as rationally as you've described it. I know that's the only way, not the only way you necessarily look at it, but that's, I think, the standard way it's described. The echo chamber, you don't hear the facts. I think it, the real problem is you can revel in the fact that you're better than other people because you know that blank. You know that whatever it is is true, and those other people are idiots. They don't know. And I think the thrill that people get, to me, the most unhealthy part of, of, of Twitter, talked about it. I don't want to beat it uh, too excessively here, but the, the unhealthy part is the, the thrill people get from being a troll or being snarky or being uncivil. And uh, I fight against it personally myself, and I fight – I try to educate my children about it who are all – uh, teenagers or early 20s to get them to think about the fact that they are subject to this phenomenon of the echo chamber, both as an information problem, but also as a psychological uh, uh, disability, really. Right. I, you're, you're clearly right. And, and um, you know, I was uh, working on behavioral economics and behavioral science in the early-ish days, not the earliest the early-ish days when the people who were doing 
that work before it got mainstream were talking to one another a lot. And you could tell there was a delight in thinking, you know, there's stuff we know that uh, those neoclassical people yeah. miss. And, and it was, uh, for participants, just what you say, fun to think, well, we've got, we've got something that is uh, unique to us. And on the political side, surely you're right. So one thought is that there's a lot of diversity out there with respect to that. So a lot of people, if they're in an echo chamber or a group of people are saying, you know, our political view is completely correct and everyone else is full of nonsense, that that gets a little old after a while. And when it gets old depends on personality and, you know, context. So there are some people who can't stand it for more than five minutes. They're contrarians by nature. And there are other people who can't stand it after a year. They think, what am I doing here? And what, what, what sort of person you are, that is a person who loves the uh, feeling that, you know, we're the, the, the club of the knowledgeable, or whether you think that that's uh, limiting and uh, uh, dull. Uh, the culture you live in, as well as your personality, is, is, is going to matter for that. And so what would be good, probably, is if uh, norms, uh, at least with respect to politics and maybe with respect to a range of things, were pressing people uh, increasingly in the direction of, uh, of broadening horizons. Yeah. So we, we all know people who are just by nature uh, impatient with things that are consistent with what they already think, and they want to see new stuff. Yeah, I mean, I... I was just going to add the point that it's not just a virtual problem. It's also a brick-and-mortar problem. I think most people would agree. Maybe you were not one of them, but I think many people would agree that college campuses and professors tend to be a little bit to the left of center and sometimes a lot to the left of center. And college students go and hang out with their fellow college students and adopt some of those attitudes. I think they don't adopt all of them. They become skeptical, as you say. They get tired of that echo chamber after a while. But I think it's... a it's a norm issue. I think it's a question right now. You know, Jonathan Haidt and others are pushing back against this with, uh, I think it's called the Heterodox Academy, this feeling that there's not a lot of uh, diversity in thought on college campuses, which is shocking. It's part of the Charles Murray problem you're talking about, this feeling of um, so overconfidence on the part of people of, of, that their views are correct and that, in theory, colleges are supposed to be the place where you – deliberately seek out ideas that make you uncomfortable and that's somehow not happening in at all college campuses the way we would like at least to idealize them and a little bit of a comparative disadvantage here because most of my career i spent at the university of chicago where the places i knew best were the law school and the economics department where there's uh i think this is part of the greatness of the university of chicago there's a ton of intellectual diversity so the Great economists, who number of whom won the Nobel, are on the political right, uh, and at the law school, many of the leading lights uh, uh, have been and still are on the political right. And at Harvard, where I'm now, the, at the law school, which is you know my my, my essential home, though, you uh, know a lot with people elsewhere in the university, including the economics department. One of my co-authors at Glazer. He's more kind of uh, he's he's so rigorous and uh, uh, fact focused that I can't even figure out and have never really thought 
to try to figure out where he is politically, but I think he's uh, right of center. I would call him something of a libertarian is what I would call him. Yeah, he's great. God bless so, him, former econ talk sure. guest. <laughs> uh, so he's, and he's a multiple co-author, and I have uh, my colleagues at Harvard Law School are, are certainly some of my best, you know, the people I write with and talk to all the time. They're not on the left, and I think they're on the right. So that uh, that complicates my ability to answer your question. Uh, I gather there's data that's consistent with the premise of the question, and that's that's a real problem. I would like to think uh, that if you're, you know, teaching at a business school and your question is something about entrepreneurship um, or if you're teaching Shakespeare in an English department and the question is, what are the what was the historical context in which King Lear was written? It really doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. And I think while there are prominent exceptions where, you know, entrepreneurship is read as associated with some bad thing of capitalism, I've never seen that in business school. And there are cases where Shakespeare is read through a political lens. But my understanding is, and this is an English major, but not an expert in English departments, that Shakespeare is not typically taught even by people who are left of center, as, uh, as someone who, for whom being left of center is relevant. So what would really disturb me, and I'm sure this does happen, is if uh, in political science or law schools, the treatment of, let's say, the party system or of uh, how to think about the Constitution is pervasively done through a political lens. That, that would not be good. Or if, it, or if it happens, it would be okay if it happens some, but in a way that allows a lot of views to, to flower. But, uh, but I, I do think that, that it's very important to uh, promote, of course, multiple ideas in the university setting. I think professors, including those who are concerned about promoting a plurality of ideas in the university setting, are, con- are focused a bit too much on the university setting. And uh, one of the lessons of, I guess, my experience in Washington was uh, universities are important, but they're less important, like much less important than people who work at universities think. Yeah, and, 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 and to focus on, you know, uh, some issue for which the human consequences are really high is better on average, than focusing on what should be taught in an English department. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I want to turn to this question that, that we're on the edge of, and it's uh, a big part of your book. And interestingly, perhaps, I, I, totally, I think I agree with you intellectually, but I don't agree with the conclusions you draw. You make a distinction between our behavior as consumers – and our behavior as citizens. And you suggest that we're all, most of us are, it's a different screaming, of course, but most of us are pretty comfortable with the idea of consumer sovereignty, at least up to a point, that people should be free to buy what they want, eat what they want, choose what they want. But you, you're much less comfortable with the consequences of that in the citizen space. So one way to phrase that would be, hey, if I don't want my Twitter feed to have anything that disagrees with my viewpoint, 
that's my business. That's my choice. And uh, that's no different than my choice of the color of car I like or what kind of ice cream I, I buy. And th- that's an interesting argument. And first push back against that argument, criticize it because you criticize it vehemently. And then let's talk about what, what to do about it, if anything. Okay, so um, the idea of consumer sovereignty, as you say, means that when you go to the grocery store, you get to buy what you want. And, you know, unless there's some identifiable reason to interfere with that, uh, don't interfere with that. Um, We have roles as citizens, too, where we may support uh, stuff that is different from what we do in our capacity as consumers. So you might think, you know, I'm in favor of um, laws forbidding racial discrimination, even though I'm kind of a discriminator. It's happened. Or you might think I want laws that are protecting endangered species, though in my capacity as consumer, I devote no attention to the endangered species problem, and I don't want to have to think about that. Now, one reason that the consumer-citizen disjunction may occur, and the March said has written nicely about this, is that if you're talking about what kind of laws you support, you can solve a collective action problem, if you're lucky, that you can't have as consumers. So for the public good, your own behavior at the supermarket will maybe contribute zero. You're just, you know, a loser in a prisoner's dilemma. But in so far as you're a citizen asking for some sort of law, if the law passes, it solves the collective action problem. And it may also be the case that there are aspirations you have for your society, which you um, think about when you're thinking about what citizens should support. But when you're a consumer, you don't do that very much, and and that's fine. And so the idea is that in your role as citizen, you may have um, uh, commitments that matter to you rarely or not at all at the grocery market. How does that how does that play out? Say in this conversation about what's in my social media feed, or you know, another you're, you're suggesting. I, I, let me phrase it in a way you don't in the book for perhaps obvious reasons, your argument is an externality. So if I'm a selfish uh, consumer of stuff that just confirms my biases, I'm going to vote badly. I'm going to be less empathetic to my fellow citizens. I'm going to be a poorer uh, citizen in, in thinking about what issues we face collectively. Is that a fair assessment? Well, it could go the other way. So so I'm giving a kind of rosy picture of the citizen, though it could be as a citizen, you may be rent-seeking and trying to get stuff for your group, and you either don't have an interest in that or think you can't succeed in that as a consumer. So it could be that the consumer is uh, kind of better than the citizen if the citizen is trying to serve selfish interests. But the point is, yes, you can be as a citizen concerned about externalities, even if you aren't as a consumer. So uh, the the, the uh, social media context, uh, here's, uh, here's a way to think of it, that, uh, and Facebook may actually have some information about this, who knows, that uh, we have um, uh, aspirations 
and we have short-term behavior. So you may on Facebook um, act in accordance with your short-term, what would be fun to see now? But it might be that you have aspirations for how you'd be on your uh, Facebook that uh, would produce a different pattern of clicks than the clicks that your short-term, um, you know, this would be fun to see now, reflects. There's a, a, a difference social scientists have studied between uh, um, what people uh, uh, think they should do and what they want to do. Yep. So you may want to have uh, all brownies for lunch, but you think you shouldn't. And for probably with respect to social media behavior, there's a similar disparity. And then the question is what to do about that. And, and Facebook and any social media provider shouldn't be trying to tank their company. So you want to do it in a way that's consistent with, you know, responsibility of shareholders. And you also shouldn't want to play uh, favorites. So you want to have a high degree of neutrality with respect to things political. But if users or some percentage of users say, you know, I'm going to click on the stuff for the reasons you gave that delight me because it's just like me. But if I also think there's something kind of uh, not admirable about that, that I don't admire it myself, I want to see different stuff, then you might want an opposing viewpoints button and you might click it. And be glad you did, even if the stuff that comes in doesn't cheer you up very much. Or you might want a serendipity button where you can click it, and then you get stuff serendipitously the same way you see if you read the daily newspaper. And that may reflect kind of your, your citizenship role. Maybe we don't even need the word kind of. It may reflect your citizenship role, role because we're talking about the news feed rather than... Uh, you know, Amazon.com, where you're buying. So the libertarian part of me, which is most of me, <laughs> uh, my thought about that is, yeah, well, we've got all that. Uh, first of all, they can offer those buttons if they want. Um, I can restrict, I can tie myself to the mast, uh, like Ulysses with the sirens. I can there's programs I can put on my computer to limit my time on Twitter and Facebook. I took Twitter off my phone because I found myself not working myself into a state over the the snark in my feed, but just spending too much time just, oh, is there anything new there? My serendipity, Twitter for me is serendipity. It's, oh, what's new now? Uh, and I think for a lot of people, that's the, that's the upside. Of course, there's the positive side of, of some of this, which you mentioned in the book, which is a lot of great social causes have been enhanced by people working themselves up into a state to overcome a free rider problem they might have to be involved politically and to be active. So to me, it's, it's just, it's a big complicated mixed bag and I don't have any reason to think that nudging to go back to your previous book with Richard Thaler, who was a guest on Econ Talk a long time, even longer ago, I think than you talking about that book, um, that that's the right, that we want government doing any of that nudging. If, if, if Facebook or Twitter or YouTube wants to offer serendipitous options, that's great. And they do, of course, in many ways. That's part of what they're selling. They do that already. If I want to restrict myself, that's up to me. It's hard for me to argue, see any argument for why, uh, other than you on a soapbox telling me it's good for me to look at a wider range of stuff, why there's any role for the government to be involved. <laughs> 
not sure what a soapbox is, and <laughs> I certainly haven't ever been on one. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah. So, uh, so it's very puzzling what that is. It must have been an old thing you stood on. Get I you guess. a little more height. Get above the crowd uh, in the in the village I green. I see. So. Uh, the discussion thus far, and the discussion in the book for sure, it's all within a libertarian framework. So there's there's no claim that the government should order Facebook or Twitter or you to do anything. The claim is that uh, there's a market which creates an architecture which uh, is reflective in the case of Facebook and maybe other social media too of a particular conception of what uh, the right values are. And uh, you could imagine a Facebook, it might even be today's Facebook, uh, rethinking those values or uh, a tech provider, and there are a bunch out there they've materialized recently that have zero to do with government that are interested in doing good and doing well by, within a libertarian framework, providing people with stuff that creates a, a, an architecture that's, let's say, more suitable to expanding your horizons and uh, engaging productively with people who think other than how you think on a particular day. So on my website, I'm sorry, on my uh, cell phone, I have no website. Well, I guess I have a website, but I have no role in it. Uh, I have an app called Read Across the Aisle, uh, which is an app that is specifically designed to allow you to monitor, uh, you know, what uh, kind of political valence is the stuff that you're seeing. And if you see stuff that you're veering blue or veering red and it's getting darker, then you are creating a little echo chamber for yourself. And it's, it's a helpful app. And there are a bunch of others where tech people are uh, inspired by the thought, you know, the United States of America, that's what the country's called, and trying to find ways for people to uh, uh, not flock together. Or if they're flocking together, the they is a very expansive group. And it's, it's inspiring and it's fantastic because it's, it's uh, promoting learning uh, of the kind that at their best uh, a daily newspaper or weekly news magazine provides where you go on and you see a point of view, you might think, I love the minimum wage. It should be really high, maybe $20 an hour. And then you read something that says if you increase the minimum wage significantly, you're going to throw people out of work who are uh, especially vulnerable. And you read that and you might reorient yourself in ways that you know, can turn a lot of people in a different political direction. Or you might think, um, you know, the immigration seems to be very bad for American employment. And then you may read something suggesting actually that's not true, that it's, uh, it has positive or neutral effects and it's good for economic growth. And that can reorient you. Now, I'm just using two examples that whose correctness is not uh, necessary for the conclusion. It's just see stuff that's different from what you think. And it, there's a lot of work now being done at the intersection of uh, uh, technological innovation and democratic practice that's right squarely in, in the domain that we're discussing. And it's uh, involves the federal government, the state government, local government, zero. Yeah, well, I'm all, I'm all for the, the those private choices. I I think uh, perhaps you and I have a different 
understanding of what the word libertarian means uh, when you say your book's from a libertarian perspective. Let, let me read a, a quote that jumped out at me. Um, you were talking in this section about – it's a really interesting point that preferences are not immutable. They come from somewhere. They're influenced by what we consume both physically, intellectually, etc. You say – None of these points means that some abstraction called government should feel free to move preferences and beliefs in what it considers to be desirable directions. That sounds libertarian. Then you go on. The central question is whether citizens in a democratic system, aware of the points made thus far, might want to make choices that diverge from those that they make in their capacity as private consumers. Sometimes this does appear to be their desire. The public's effort to counteract the adverse effects of consumer choices should not be disparaged as a form of government meddling or unacceptable paternalism, at least if the government is democratic and reacting to the reflective judgments of the citizenry. So what I read you to be saying there is that uh, all the government is is just our collective choices, and we might choose as a group to stop some practice that we as individuals might enjoy. So we might decide, say, to ban trans fats or Twitter or something because we think it's bad for us, even though we know as individuals uh, we enjoy it. And I don't really see that as libertarian, and I don't understand why I shouldn't disparage that as a form of government meddling. And I think perhaps you and I have a different view of what democracy is or how it trans forms one's individual okay. preference into collective okay. choice. Okay, there are a couple things going on. So I, I thought we were... I, I thought we, okay, okay, good. So I thought we were discussing um, responses to the echo chamber question and responses to the absence of shared experiences question. And I think the words I used were within a libertarian framework, not from a libertarian perspective. Uh, correct. Sorry about that. And, and and if I was precise, and I maybe wasn't, then no, my fault. What, 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 what I meant was that, uh, that the ideas of Facebook rethinking its news feed by providing, let's say, a serendipity button or an opposing viewpoint button or having an algorithm that's attentive to the sorts of things we're discussing or having the private sector develop things of the sorts that have been flowering in the last months, that's all within a libertarian framework. There's no role for the government. So that's one thing. Then there's another issue. And so the book's proposals with respect to the echo chamber effect I think they're all within a libertarian framework. Now, the sentences you read um, uh, could minimally suggest that if there's a collective action problem that citizens seek to solve through government, uh, there isn't a basis for objection. And I think that uh, on that view, that's correct. So, and the libertarians shouldn't have a problem with that unless, I guess, there are anarcho libertarians who might and uh, Ostrom inspired people who might think you don't need this and that's that could be true but it would be really lucky if that were always true so the idea would be that if you have a public good like national security is the easiest example but clean air and clean water to others that citizens are trying to uh, combat a prisoner's dilemma that they know they face uh, I say go for it um, and consumers may, when they buy automobiles or um, refrigerators, not take on board the externality. And then citizens, as such, informed 
properly or even intuiting it anyway, they go for a suitable corrective tax, let's say, then uh, that's fine. So I th I'm not sure what you're worried about exactly. Uh, the the passage... Well, what, I'm, what I'm worried about so, is public choice, which is you write actually somewhat disparagingly about. Um, I worry about the arrow of possibility theorem. I worry about the fact that you painted so, a rosy what, idea that, that we as so, a group... So what, I meant, what are you worried about? I, I meant what concretely, not what theoretically. What am so, I worried about? I'm worried about special interests hijacking the process. I'm worried about the rights of minorities. I'm yeah. worried about the fact yeah, that there's too. no I'm such about thing those. as the public interest. It's a phrase that is used often to get people to do things in their own interest. Those I think we're, we're getting into theology, and I'd prefer to avoid that. So uh, the sentences you read uh, are, um, uh, are uh, compatible with, and this is what I actually had in mind, the solution to public good problems. And if the concern is that you may have uh, Condorcet jury theorem or arrow type problem with respect to the Clean Air Act. Well, I'm not really worried about that. No, neither am I. If the, if, the if the problem is that you're worried that you will have special interests taking over the Clean Air Act, I'm completely worried about that, and I agree with you. So uh, I disparage public choice theory in the sense that, with respect to the operations of the executive branch, my own observation and experience is that it's. Uh, a tiny, tiny, uh, comparatively source of problems with respect to executive branch decision making in Congress larger, but I think academics focus too much on it. But but tiny, tiny means percentage. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And so we need something like a cost benefit filter to reduce the likelihood that it will um, have have a disastrous effect. So I meant concretely, I'm trying to think of what concrete practice are you bothered by. If you're bothered by uh, government using, let's say, consumer overriding, uh, using citizen values to override private property rights, I'm completely with you. So you want a takings clause uh, as a safeguard against that. If you're worried about minority rights, which you said, I, I agree with that also. So um, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm struggling to think of the concrete cases where the sentences you read would lead to a result where where we disagree. Do you think and the bailout of Wall Street in 2008 was a result of uh, the public's effort to counteract uh, the adverse effects of consumer choices? Do you think that was a public good? It was certainly justified that no, way. It was certainly no. described as a necessary thing to avoid a meltdown of the economy. I well, view it as that a, one. Well, that that that's a, a fair question, which seems to me it would depend on kind of some technical stuff about the social consequences of the thing. So I'm I'm thinking where if the sentences that you read aren't about public goods, where we agree a that solution of collective action problems is a good idea, and we agree b that protection against uh, interest group capture of the process is very important. So we agree on both of those things. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, where would we have a, a disagreement? It, it would really, <laughs> yes, it, it I would think really, it's, it would, it's really not it's, what the book is about. It's, but but if well, it's if it's about like bans on racial discrimination, well, is that a, what do you think? A of 
No, there's a lengthy discussion. What do you think of bans? What do you think of bans on racial discrimination? Hang on, there's a lengthy discussion in the book. I get to ask a question. What do you think of bans on racial discrimination? Uh, in general, I think they're not helpful. Uh, do you think they violate first principles? I don't think bans on employment discrimination. I don't think so. Not, not not helpful is a different point. Well, so the the, the, the the sentences you read can be understood to apply not only to the solution to public good problems, but also to allow citizens to say, you know what, uh, I might be a discriminator, but I think it's kind of a bad idea, so we're going to ban employment discrimination. I don't see any in principle objection to that. That's not the issue. That's not the well, issue. Th- it's not what we're talking about. It's not what I'm objecting to. I'm not objecting okay, to the fact so that you and I disagree I, I, about I, certain I, policies. I might be, I might be being obtuse. I'm, I'm just not clear on what so you're me, objecting to. I'm objecting to two things, uh, one of which is that you said we agree on A, that there are things that, that, are, that there are public goods. We agree on B, that when we intervene to solve public good problems, we should be aware of special interests. The question is what actually happens. It's not a question of what the ideal is. The question is what actually happens. So when government intervenes to solve a problem uh, using the collective power of, its, uh, of the government, whether that's actually uh, done for good to, to achieve good or not. And you can certainly argue that it could be, and you can certainly argue that you want it to be. The question is, does it? And that's the question. Okay, I, that, okay that's, that's a different book. And while I have other books in the pipeline, they're not on that question. You didn't write in this book, you didn't write a, a, a number of pages in this book about that people who oppose regulation because they, they're against government intervention or ignoring the fact that government intervenes all the time in property rights and courts. No, which that, I, oh, no, no. It's you, a big theme of the no, last no, the, part the, of the, the book. The, the protection of property rights is uh, you need government to do that, realistically speaking. I mean, you we can rely on, on self I'm not, I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. So, I'm not an anarcho-libertarian. So the, so, so the argument that I was making there is that government regulation is central, as Hayek rightly said, to the operation of a free market system. So that to oppose government regulation is inconsistent with the uh, creed of those who believe in free markets. And they should not say they oppose government regulation. What they say should say is they oppose government regulation that goes beyond a specified catalog. Of of that, that would be my view. Okay, that's fine. So there's no logical I'm classical liberal. I'm not an anarcho-libertarian. Okay, so so then then so far on, on this point we have no disagreement on on regulation. The argument of the book is that uh, to protect property rights, to protect freedom of contract, you need government regulation. I mean, in principle, you could have a private property system that relied on self-help and a contract system that relied on norms, but that's really hard. So, so the argument for government regulation is uh, – the argument about government regulation is that a system of free markets depends on it, and if you want to oppose uh, regulation of the speech market, then you will lead – website holders and Facebook users to their self-help remedies. And that is might work, but it's challenging. And to this, I would add that some forms of government regulation of the speech market, as through regulation of uh, uh, price fixing or uh, child pornography or bribery or, or bribery threats completely, are 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 uh, acceptable. 
So the point there, I think, is I think my point is very. I think it's le- much less controversial than you think, so, unless I'm missing something. So my point is only that uh, system private property is dependent on government regulation, and beyond that, certain regulations of the speech market are uh, long-standing parts of the most robust free speech traditions. And you know maybe they should be scaled back some, but uh, I wouldn't want to authorize people to engage in price fixing. Well, I agree with a lot of that. I think the, the tougher question, which uh, maybe we're skirting around here, is comes back to this fundamental issue that, that you do focus on, which is consumer versus political sovereignty. Are, are you willing, and I think you are, unless I misread your book, are you willing to allow the political process to intervene in these institutions? And I'm, I think it's an interesting question. With respect to Twitter and Facebook, no. So I, so I, where? I hope the then book's where? clear on that. Okay, good. So oh, where? So, so with the speech market, I, I'm pretty comfortable with where we now are. So uh, in terms of government. So the, the book is, I mean, the sentences you write are, are I stand by. And as I said, I'm struggling to find some concrete domain in which we disagree. But in terms of the speech market, the idea that the government you know, uh, protects property rights and forbids uh, bribery and price fixing and child pornography. All, all, all those things seem good to me. Uh, uh, false commercial advertising, I'm, I'm in favor of banning the, uh, at least the constitutionality of allowing that to be banned. So, um, uh, I, I don't disagree so, with any so, of those. Just tell me then what. Given the issue that you've raised in the book, which I think can is I, can, I, can, I, can I step back a little bit? Sure. I think you okay. I, I think this is important. Uh, if I may say, with affection and respect, I think you have a bee in your bonnet about government regulation, and I honor that bee. But the book isn't about that bee. The book is about echo chambers and shared experiences. It, it is emphatically not a plea for government regulation. It's the opposite no, of that. No, it's not. <laughs> so, so I feel a little bit like we're having a conversation that is baffling to me because this book isn't about that. We could talk about whether bridge is the best game of cards that there is. The book isn't about that. I don't even know how to play bridge. I do know how to talk a little bit about the issues we're discussing, but... It's just foreign. To, it's it's entirely foreign to the plea of the book. Uh, well, let me say two things in response to that. The first is uh, to my listeners generally, which is when I have a guest on, whether I agree or disagree with the guest, my goal is to let the guest expand on the ideas that are the main focus of the book. And I think we've done that, uh, perhaps not as much as you'd like or directions you'd like. But then I try to find things in the book that I think are particularly interesting that we might not agree on. Uh, if the only point of your book was to point out that there are echo chambers and they're, they're, they have some implications for democracy and it was a book of social observation, it would be a much shorter and less interesting book. You have a lot to say in the book about the limits, uh, unless I misread it, about the limits of consumer sovereignty. And in fact, I think there's at least a chapter on the fact that as citizens, there's a chapter called Citizens, 
And I, I'm not suggesting, I don't mean to suggest, um, that would be unfair. Listeners out there, take note. The book is not a plea for government intervention in freedom of speech. There's a lot of, um, on the other hand, sprinkled throughout the book. They're often in the form of, to be sure. Uh, but I, I think it would be the case that you want more than, this is more than just a book about this is alarming. I, th- I think you want to do something about it. I, I don't yes. you? So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I do. So the, I'm not against that. Okay. I, the no, question completely. is what? So the, so, so the, the, I mean, the book the way, is Cass, much more, Cass, the you, book would, is much more about, the book is much more about the problems than solutions. And, uh, here's, I think, something that is, um, essential to keep in mind. There are some problems for which we lack solutions problem of human mortality right now. That's kind of a problem, but we don't have a solution to that. So it may be that the, the problems identified in the book are ones for which easy solutions just aren't available. Now, I, I do have a, a few ideas, and um, you know, not the ones that we're going to describe aren't original with me. An opposing viewpoint button, which isn't going to cure what ails us, but where people can press a button and get access on their news feed to lots of different ideas. That's uh, helpful. Um, and people would like it. It's consistent with consumer sovereignty. Or a serendipity button where people could, you know, uh, choose to get lots of random draw stuff rather than stuff that's uh, an algorithm based on their own preferences. So those are two ideas. Um, you could see a flowering, and this is very much uh, sought in the book, of, uh, and we've seen it more in the last months than I think in the previous uh, couple of years, of uh, private sector creativity, both in creating shared experiences and in allowing people to get access to stuff that's inconsistent with what they think. I believe the New York Times now has once a week something like see lots of different perspectives. And that that's really admirable. It doesn't have anything to do with government, but it's part of what the book actually calls for. So insofar as we're talking about social media providers or sources of information from large uh, entities, uh, to go in these directions would be a really good idea. The, the citizen chapter to which you rightly point doesn't say that citizens in their capacity as such should be, you know, making hash of free market systems. It just says that citizens sometimes have, uh, principles and values that diverge from their own practices as consumers. And as I say, the the environmental and public good cases are the easiest. I I, I would say race and sex discrimination, or sexual orientation discrimination, disability discrimination are some others. But this isn't a license to say, you know, anything that has the imprimatur of the U.S. Congress is okay. So there are rights-based safeguards. There are a narrow-ish catalog of market failures that citizens can be responding to. My guest today has been Cass Sunstein. Cass, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.